So guys, I've just made my way back from the town centre to get a couple of hair bits that I needed. But please tell me why there's only one main store in the centre of town. Like, I live in Reading, and that's not a small town, you know. There's a large black community here, but what I've noticed is that if you don't live in a big city, getting the products that you need for your hair as a black person can sometimes be a bit of a mission. Travelling miles to get a teeny tiny bit of edge control and a wig cap can sometimes even be the norm. Pearl Natasha, Patsy and Siddy share some of my very same sentiments. Derry is a very homogeneously white city. Northern Ireland is very, very white in general. And honestly, there's over 90 hairdressers and there's only one hairdresser that works with black hair. When Boots finally started getting black hair care products, I swear my mom actually could have cried because before that, we were traveling an hour and a half, two hours to an African woman who would do our hair in her kitchen and we would be paying stupid money for this experience. If I want to go to a black hair salon, I need to go to Manchester. So like a train away, like 30 minutes, drive in 30 minutes, so it's not just, at ease and I have noticed like boots and stuff are doing you know can too but I, I, I'm sure that's not actually a black business it's not um, accessible really. At the moment I live in Stockwood but I grew up mainly in an area called Henbury in Bristol where, like the area of Bristol I grew up I grew up in like a predominantly white area and in terms of getting products for my hair it was literally the other side of Bristol for me. So it used to be like, I have to write a list and be like, mum, this is what I need. And my mum would have to go and get it. The black hair care industry is worth an estimated 88 million pounds in the UK, with black women spending six times more on hair care than our white counterparts. From natural shampoos and conditioners, to gels, to styling creams, and of course, weaves and wigs. Despite black women's buying power, we still remain mostly ignored by mainstream beauty brands and the lack of accessibility of black hair products on the high street has been an issue for years. With black people becoming more conscious shoppers since the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement, I wanted to find out where the ownership really lies in the black hair industry and how important it is that we buy black when it comes to our hair products. My name is Leanne Alley, aka your resident podcast queen, and this is episode three of Coiled. Who owns the black hair industry? In this episode, I will be exploring the evolution of the black hair care industry in the UK. I'll be speaking to Rudy Page, who is the former marketing and sales manager of Dyke and Dryden, about the legacy of the black hair sector in the UK. I sold all over the country, so I sold the products, managed the brands as well, to all the retailers, hairdressers. I'll be speaking to Peter Mullerhey, who is the CEO of Pax Cosmetics. What's your heritage? When you say, what's my heritage, what exactly do you mean? What's your ethnic background? I'm a Jamaican. I'm black. Black Jamaican. My mother's black, my father's black. You want to do my DNA test, you'll find I'm 28% Nigerian. And we'll be hearing from Sandra Brown Pinnock again, as she is one of the only black women in South London to own a black hair retail store called Sandy's. So you've got to let someone know, and you're also going to say black owned. 
I know a lot of people don't want to say that, but maybe 90% of us are looking to make sure that we support business in our community. But if they don't know, how can they buy from you? But firstly, I spoke to Soraya, who is from Aylesbury. Aylesbury is a town that has a large black population. How big is the black community huge. in Aylesbury? <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? I had yeah, no it's idea. There's loads of us. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot. I would, I'd say it's quite big. I mean, I am, I'm Jamaican. So a lot of Jamaicans, a lot of Dominicans. Really? Yeah, I'm, not, I'm not Dominican. Dominican. Um, in the next town across, which is like about 20 minutes away, there's a lot of people from St. Vincent. Um, quite a large African community as well, which is really nice, which is really, really nice. There's a sense of community around it. I wanted to find out how accessible it is for her to buy the black hair products that she needs and whether or not it's important for her to buy black owned. Ellsbury isn't the best place. Um, I, I do have one, I, I, I guess, call it a privilege if you must, um, is that my mum's a hairdresser. So for me, I've always had a, a good direction in sort of, I guess, knowing what to get. But it, it, sourcing it in Aylesbury is difficult because like it's only sort of, I would say, in like maybe like the last year and a half, I can maybe go into Superdrug and get edge control. Or we have had shops in Aylesbury over the years that have maybe sourced some products, but overpriced, don't have prices on, rip people off unless you know what you're talking about, not always open, not the best customer service. Um, and I, do you know what? I hate to say this, but it just, it, the, the, the standard just hasn't, hasn't been there. So it's always been like a couple of shops, just not the best. So because I drove, I'd have to go to somewhere like maybe like Luton. Or I'd have to go to like North London and go to a PAX, for example. And how far is that from you? Um, closest PAX is Hull. Is there one in Halston? I think there's one in Halston. It's somewhere north. It's like 50 minutes. That's crazy. That's actually crazy. And the stores that you do have in Ellsbury, out of interest, who owns those stores? Are they black owned? They have been black owned. They have definitely been black owned. And I love to support black businesses 100% but the, the thing is when I've driven out of town they haven't been black owned so the problem that we faced in Ellsbury is that we do have a couple of stores and there is one in Ellsbury now actually she doesn't put prices on every time I go in there she charges me something different and I'm like why would you do that because like we all want to support black owned I'm very much for black owned but like how can I support you if every other time I keep going in there you'll charge in like you try charge me something <laughs> you try charge me something different which is really frustrating to be honest I think some of my friends have probably said if we were to do it the younger people would do it they'd probably be better they are older women that have done it in more like their 50s that have had stores I definitely do buy from black owned stores online though um the afro beauty company really good really good black owned store lots and lots of products um and i'd always strive to buy, buy black owned from a black owned store before anything else where i can i'll be honest it's only in the last year that i've been a lot more conscious about buying black owned 
especially when it comes to my hair products. However, the importance of buying black differs from person to person, but I know I'm not the only one who has gone on this journey to become a more intentional shopper. Here's Dom, Lorraine and Brooklyn who share their views. I do think it's important for me to at least be more conscious about buying black hair products as I want to, you know, support our cultural economy and also help my people to build generational wealth. It became more important for me to buy black owned products when I recontextualized my relationship with my hair and stopped thinking that my hair was difficult, actually discovering products that were specially made by and for people with my own hair type has really changed my relationship with my hair and how I deal with it. It's important for me to buy both black and white consumer directed products when it comes to my hair. As a mixed race woman, I have to tailor my hair care regime with a combination of different textures, weights and finishes. Sometimes that means buying black owned and sometimes not. Although there is no official data on the breakdown of the ownership of the black hair retail sector, it is widely thought that the South Asian community are the biggest providers of black hair care products to the black community. And we can see this with the prominence of brands like Pax on our high street, which is a Pakistani family-owned business. But it wasn't always like this. Before brands like Pax, there was Dyke and Dryden. Dyke and Dryden isn't on our high street anymore, but their impact was so significant as they were the UK's first Afro hair care distributor, which also became one of Britain's first black-owned multi-million pound businesses. They paved the way for the black-owned beauty businesses and really served the black community. I mean, they were the largest provider of trade credit to the black business sector. They even created a credit union that gave business loans to black people. Do you know how major that is? In order to understand the business landscape of the black hair care sector today, we need to understand the legacy of Dyke and Dryden. So I spoke to Rudy Page, who is the former sales and marketing manager for Dyke and Dryden. Right, so you had uh, Dyke, Mr. Dyke, Mr. Dryden and Mr. Wade. So Dyke and Dryden as a company started in May 1965 and Mr. Wade joined them in 1968. Three entrepreneurs based up in, up in Tottenham and then they opened up a shop in Wood Green Shopping City actually. And so at the time, and that was uh, June 1982, that was a, a major achievement for a Caribbean-owned business at that time. They faced considerable dis uh, discrimination as business people, regardless of how successful they were. Management of Wood Green Shopping City refused to, uh, their request to actually open a shop in the centre. It's only because they got onto their solicitors who wrote to them, so they're allowed in. And when the company first hit one million pounds turnover, they couldn't get an overdraft from the bank for five thousand pounds. Wow! So I think that exemplifies yeah. the environment of the nineteen eighties. Even though there were other companies around, but Dyke and Dryden was significant because as a black business, they we were then doing business with all the major black hair companies in right. the U.S. Right. So that's what enabled Dyke and Dryden to outgrow all the other competitors. Because in those days as well, the, the distribution of hair products was tightly controlled by a number of few 
a few wholesalers and um, chemists, as we, they were called then, compared to, you didn't really have drug stores until later on, so the market was really controlled. But once it opened up with the new trends, that's what enabled Dykendrines to grow so fast and the consumer demand for, for curly perms and um, relaxers and, and, and Dykendrides outgrew and became the biggest mm. because we, we, um, we controlled the main brands because I, I worked on nearly all of the brands that were established. Dykin Dryden's impact goes beyond providing hair care products to the black community. Social impact and community engagement was a huge part of their business and their legacy and their success. In fact, we used to speak in schools and children's homes about black hair as well. That was one thing about Dykin Dryden, they they had that social conscience as well that was really important. In the early 80s, or 70s and 80s, there were a lot of black youngsters and those of mixed race as well who were in children's homes and their hair was not being taken care of because they were, then there really was a lack of awareness what to do with all these children's hair. So that was part of our role in Dyke and Dryden to, to do that. Dyke and Dryden also invested in the hairdressing schools as well because at one time there were a lot of hairdressing schools and um, Dyke and Dryden invested and supported those because again that's about skills in the community, young people giving them opportunities. And, it, and also, of course, when you're providing uh, skills into local economy. It's not necessarily that the young people are going to stay in that particular sector, but you're getting them used to the world of work, what it means to, you know, link, um, interpersonal skills, all those kind of things, getting to work on time and understand what that means and things like that. It's important at the time, it's really important at the time. Yeah, that's really, that's really one of the reasons why I wanted to have this conversation mm-hmm. today to really talk about Dyke and Dryden and that mm-hmm. legacy, not yeah. just in the hair care business, yeah. but setting the foundations for other black owned businesses in the UK. Yeah. Um, Thinking back to that time in the 80s when you first started working with them, did you have any idea of the scope and the legacy that this company was about to lead? Did you feel that at the time or were you just like, no, this, is just, this is just my yeah, job? To me, I knew there was something different about Dyke and Dryden. The reason being as well, as business people, they were heavily involved in social causes and community causes. So Mr. Dyke was chair of what was the... Um, West Indian Standing Conference and the Association of Jamaicans, so he was heavily involved with that. So was Mr. Dryden. But also Mr. Dryden, he was um, worked, he, he was like chair of Hackney Race Equality Council, so he was regularly going to police stations to get black youngsters out of the police station. Because mm. what we have to remember in the 1980s, that was during the SUS laws. What so that the SUS means, laws? And, and what that would be that as a, a black youngster, you, you could be at lunchtime all nicely dressed up just, and then be picked up by the police and then taken back to the police station on the basis that they could say, well, you could have been, or you might, you know, you know they, they could just suspect you of about to do something, some old 19th century law. So a lot of black youngsters uh, were, were caught up in that. So Mr. Dryden was heavily involved in that. Mm. So that. So we could see there was something different about them. And the fact is that I said that they, they felt it was important that we spoke in schools, spoke in children's homes about the products. So it wasn't just about selling the products, but there's also that kind of social cause, which when I look back, that's what made me really think about you know, the difficulty of some of our young people. And if we're in a position to assist, we should assist without expecting anything in return. So I've always sort of taken that approach. So, so yeah, there was always something different about Dyke and Dryden. And the other important thing about them was that Dyke and Dryden was the largest provider of trade credit to Caribbean-owned businesses in this country. So again, and that was significant because in in those days as well, that the way um, the trade worked, that um, it was very much cash on delivery. 
and if they trusted you, they would take a post-dated check. So a lot of the black businesses, um, if, they, if they didn't have the money, then the, the suppliers would take the order back, even though it's a run-up to the weekend, mm. busy, busy time. So Dyke and Dryden was really significant. But we, we did use that as a marketing tool as well, because yeah. it's about market share and controlling market for our brands as well. So mm. it was business decisions. <laughs> <laughs> and am I right in thinking part of the reason why that's so significant for black businesses in the UK at the time, was it very difficult for black owned businesses to get loans from high Yeah, yeah it, it, was, it was next to impossible. Right. Because again, if you think of the point I made that if there's a black business in a particular sector that can turn over one million pounds and cannot get an overdraft for 5,000 pounds, yeah. imagine what that means for the rest of the businesses. And much of that kind of challenges within UK society has not really changed. So I used to say, well, if you're not going to support the most talented people, that sends a message to the rest of the community because the community know who the most talented people are. And if they see they're not getting anywhere, then it's obvious. So when you talk, when you hear uh, people in senior positions talk about lack of representation, they know why there's a lack of representation because the barriers have been carefully constructed to be that way. Mm. You just don't allow the most talented people. You just don't appoint them. You just don't give them the budgets. You just don't commission them. And then so that can create a despondency, but yet you will still have determined people because people will, in the end, still come through. And Dyke and Dryden represented those people who were determined, in spite of all the barriers, to come through. And that's why they're an important part of the legacy in terms of determination, regardless of uh, you know, the environment that, that, they're in, yeah. that you're in at the time. And you've touched on the fact that Dyke and Dryden was a multifaceted business, so it wasn't just about hair care, it was the supply chain, it was about providing credit, it was about the social impact work as well. For listeners and people, younger people, school age, what would you want them to understand about the legacy of Dyke and Dryden in order to understand the blueprint of black businesses in the UK today? I doubt very much if things have really changed now, relative-wise. But there's a lot of lessons from the past to be learned, and that's to do with collaboration. Tell me more about that. And not thinking, and not trying to be an individual. Mm. So Dyke and Dryden, it was a collective. So if you think about providing credit, they hosted the first what was called the Caribbean and Afro Society of Hairdressers. So in their warehouse in Tottenham, got all the hairdressers together and said, "Look, you know, you need to have an association. You need to collaborate." So collaboration is key. Mm. And again, it hasn't changed because these days we talk about the 21st century skills. What yeah. are they? Collaboration, creativity, communication, critical thinking. It's no, it's no different. <laughs> in, in terms of young people now and our communities now, the, in spite of the challenges, what Dyke and Dryden has shown, that if you're willing to collaborate with each other, if you're willing to uh, come up with ideas about serving your, your own community, and your own community is open to actually supporting itself as well. Because one of the challenges with what we may call our community, our community is made up of lots of individuals who are entitled to make whatever dis- decisions they want about their buying habits or you know what they choose to support. So in a sense, the young people of today have got to understand where their interests lie, particularly as consumers. So again, what Dyke and Dryden showed, and it's, it's a mantra we use today. It's important to make things and sell them. It's important to produce your own products and services and sell them, but not just sell them, but to use them as well. It's important to use them. 
and then the products that you use that you should be in the selling process within your community must be part of the selling process and then you must train and support the next generation and uh, again there's always been people within our community and always will be who who done who do very well as individuals but society works on impact and groups of people collaborating working together with shared with shared values mm. and and that that is uh, going back to my point about the collaboration this uh, generation that uh, they're not going to get away from the fact that you, you cannot do it on your own. Mm. The world's too big, it's too complex, mm. and it is, you know, work as a cluster, work as a group. That's still a really important uh, point. So, obviously, Dyke and Dryden isn't on our high street anymore. What happened mm. to the business? Mm. In the 90s, mid-90s, the Dyke and Dryden um, merged the company with one of the American companies, Softsheen. And it wasn't a great success. And uh, and I think they had very little choice because as the market grew, it then became much more competitive, much more challenging as a small business. And this is what happens in any market in terms of a niche market. Once it starts to really grow and the much larger companies see the benefit of, you know, being involved. And, uh, and that was really the demise of Nike and Dryden was when it had to um, merge, you know. And then so those values uh, of that fa small family business, community related, in touch with the community had changed, uh, or had to change. I mean, I had left a few, year, few years before that anyway. But yeah, that's why really we, we focus on the 80s, because the lessons are in the 1980s. From listening to Rudy and his experience with Dyke and Dryden over the years, it's pretty clear that the biggest learning that Rudy had to share was collaboration. And that is key for businesses to succeed. But how does this compare to the experiences within the black hair care industry today? Firstly, we went to go and visit Sandra Brown Pinnock in her industrial unit in Peckham. Right, so we do so many different products. So we do a lot of shea butters because, as you know, um, shea butter is really good. Shea butter have got so many different um Sandra actually had a 20-year career in the mental health sector before she moved into the hair care business. She suffered hair loss due to stress and was dissatisfied with the customer service she received at her local hair store. She basically went in asking what to use to help her hair loss and they gave her some edge control. This was her catalyst to start her own natural product range which is called Primal Beauty Natural. She also has her own black hair store called Sandy's. You may recognise Sandra as she's had a couple viral moments over the years and she's been incredibly vocal about the importance of black people supporting black businesses. We're going to change the narrative and we're going to encourage to say, to say, look, we're going to put back into our community. If you don't say to someone, listen, the reason why you should stop doing that because of this, they won't understand. And once you explain that to them, I think that they started coming into the store in, in Streatham. Despite Sandra building multiple product lines from scratch and having a really well-established business, she's faced quite a few challenges as a black female founder in the black hair sector. What I notice is that people would buy products or they would buy hair extension, whatever they buy, they, um, two minutes later they'd come back and say, oh, I don't really want it anymore, they changed my mind. So I used to just give them back their money. And, and then this day in particular, this is about six months later, 
um, this lady came in and, and I always remember she wanted um, cream of nature. She wanted the shampoo, the conditioner, and she wanted a serum. But I didn't have the serum. But she said, oh, okay, Sandra, I'm going to buy these two. I have to go out to the front. So for me, I just thought that because everything that I do, I, I brand it. Everything has got Zandis on there, even with my Primal Beauty. I brand everything. So it's good. so I had the Zandis bag. I had everything. So she went out with and she said, as she walked into the shop, the guy just pulled the bag away from her and said, why, why did you go there? Take it back to her and I will come here and I'm going to give it to you 50% less because she will not be there. We're going to crush her. She won't be there in six months. And she was so mad. She was using all the, you know, obscene language. And she was really great, mad about that. She said, I can't believe that this is what this guy said. And she was mm -hmm. talking about the respect and how they disrespect her, that they, they would say that to her about her own sister. And I was really upset about it. So I just got my phone and I just spoke into it and say, you know, this is what happened. <laughs> so just explain to me briefly, who was the guy that ripped the products out of your customer's hands? The guy in the Indian shop um, that's at the front because he's a... a was Indian, this a d another yeah, hair shop? That's another hair shop. Right. Yeah. So he took the bag from her and said, they were gonna, we are going to crush her. She won't be there within six months. She even had so many issues with the store that she opened in Peckham that eventually she had no choice but to close it. And to be honest, the reason why I closed the store in Peckham because every other day the staff were fighting because it was like, I, I can only use this term, a feeding tree for thieves. That they don't take one thing, they would come in and clear old shelf. And they would come in and... I remember this lady, um, I wasn't there, and one of the staff told me she came in and she said, we are taking this. And she took all this extension off and tried. So the staff had a big fight. They had to call the police. She closed the door and, you know, until the police came. Everybody know that this, these, that the two Sandys, one in Lucia and one in Peckham, was owned by a black woman. And I couldn't understand that, you know, people from our same community were coming in and just taking stuff and were just so bold about it that, you know, we're taking this and then want to fight on top of it. It actually breaks my heart to hear the difficulties that Sandra faced. As someone who is such a champion for Black-owned businesses and trying to serve the community with a Black-owned hair care store that we've been crying out for, it doesn't make sense to me why she experienced so many setbacks. I wanted to compare Sandra's experience to that of Pax, which is the largest distributor of Black hair care in the UK. You actually can't go to a single London borough without seeing at least one pack shop on the high street. It's definitely a household name, which pretty much took the place of Dyke and Dryden in its prominence on the high street from the 1990s onwards. But what is it that continues to make packs so successful that no other black high street retailer is able to compete with them at the moment? Here's Peter Mudahey. He is the CEO of Pax Cosmetics and he seems to have done every single job in the hair care business. I've been in the, uh, the Afro hair care business now for a good 40 years. I now develop products and deal with compliance. I've worked in the US, the Caribbean, South Africa and obviously for the last 15 years I've been here in London running Pack Cosmetics um, and uh, you know, helping my, uh, my partners build that business to what it is today. This is how PAX got started. 
The PAX ideally started in 1967 as a, a grocery business, if you like. Um, back in those days, uh, hair care products were sold alongside um, foods from the Caribbean and what have you. There was primarily one distributor that kind of kicked it off. It was a company called Dyke and Dryden. Yeah, it worked across um, uh, shipping, travel, um, you know, there was, and then obviously the, the hair care business was, was kind of a big distribution um, game for them. They ended up selling to one of the, the brand manufacturers. And when they did that, a lot of the brands all of a sudden didn't want them to distribute their products anymore because obviously they were owned by one of the leading competitors. So that kind of opened the door for other people to get in. And these brands, they looked and said, well, where do we go? You know, if well, who else sells Afro, you know, hair products? And so the, the, the ideal place to go was the, you know, the Indian or the Asian grocery or butcher shop that was selling foods to, to, to Caribbeans. So, you know, alongside the Yemen banana, it's the same audience. So you figure, you know, you, you, you've got them coming around saying, look, can you please put our products on your shelves because they were hungry for a new distribution channel. So from that, you know, you, you end up splitting the business in from food into a little bit of cosmetics. The, the success of it in the Afro side of the business is that, you know, over the years, it's kind of spread. We've ended up selling more cosmetics than food that we've just, you know, in, in the, in the uh, 90s, we totally did away with the food and just literally sold beauty mm -hmm. products. And the business has just you know uh, as I can say it's multiplied from there year on year and I mean we we spend a lot of time investing or reinvesting into the business which is why we've got so many shops now. So what is it that makes PAX so successful that they can keep opening up multiple stores across the country? We don't buy things for a pound and sell them for four pounds and then afterwards tell you it's half price. You know, we buy it for a pound. We might sell it one ninety nine, two ninety nine. Twenty percent of that goes and pays the the VAT man. But we're fair in our pricing, and I think you know the the wider spectrum of consumers appreciate that, and you know they flock to us. So our demographics is uh, changed. So at the moment, our demographics it's about uh, forty percent um, African and Caribbean, and the other sixty percent is made up of Caucasians and multicultural. We, the, our our remit or, or our makeup of our business has now changed in the last five years to being a multicultural business as opposed to a supplier of uh, you know black hair products or African American products or Caribbean products or mm. you know we're really now a multicultural supplier so when people come into me and they say to me oh yeah you should do this and you should do that then I have to turn around and think to myself well, what about all the other nationalities what about the Brazilians what about the Chinese the, the Greek Cypriots that are coming in you know um, we've got Ghana Day we've got Nigerian Day but we've also got to be you know re take reconnaissance of the other nationalities and, and ethnicities that we serve. I've got to say, I was quite surprised when Peter said that only 40% of PAC's customer base are black consumers. I mean, obviously, gentrification has changed the makeup of a lot of areas, particularly in London. But if you've been inside any PAC store in any location, you'll know that pretty much all the products and accessories that they stock are for Afro hair. I actually don't think PAX would exist in its vastness today if it wasn't for the black pound. The competitiveness on the high street, which Sandra described, which was so overt in her situation, actually shows the value of the black pound. We're big spenders in the hair sector, and as consumers, we drive the growth of this industry. Even as the biggest player in the industry, Pax has also faced the challenge of price wars, but they always seem to prevail. 
you know there used to be a time where anytime we opened a store you know you get five or six other people running down to try and open up the store next to us and people say to me when we go to Finsbury Park why do you have so many packed shops on either side of the street that's the reason why if we own all the property the competitors can't come in and try and start a price war or cut us out this example in particular really got me thinking about ownership Pax has a monopoly over the marketplace. If you're in London especially, you'll find one in almost every single borough. It's convenient, it's cheap, and stocks pretty much everything that you need. And for other retailers, especially those black-owned businesses that are trying to gain a place on the high street, it's very, very difficult to compete because Pax is pricing out the competition but also taking up the physical space on the high street. I myself have often shopped for convenience and I only really properly started thinking about buying black owned in the summer of 2020. A mixture of the coronavirus pandemic, not being able to go to physical stores, but also the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement really reminded me of the importance of putting money back into the community, which is so easy to do online these days. You can hear more about this after this short break. I mean, as much as I'm a fan of the Robless England mentality, for products and services that are specific to our community, it really relies on the black pound to survive. And black hair care falls into this category. So for this reason, buying black owned hair care products is important to me. I think this is one of the places where it starts, but we need to have the same energy for other industries when it comes to buying black owned and supporting small black businesses. I asked Rudy, Sandra and Peter what their thoughts are on buying black owned and how this can impact our community. The Black Lives Matter then and the environment that we're living in now at least raise the consciousness that there should be a level of ethical behaviour when it came to buying consumer goods. And then the focus on black lives and hair then start to get inextricably linked with, you know, that empowerment or disempowerment, depending which depends on your point of view. I think that there's a wake up where we see that if we don't do that, then we won't have a community. So we have to make sure that we invest in our community, especially for young people. And you're also going to say black owned. I know a lot of people don't want to say that, but if they don't know, how can they buy from you? But despite consciousness we live in a competitive world and the consumers easily enticed to say well yeah I know but you know mm. this is 10 quid cheaper than yeah. you so it, it, so it's, it's whether a sense of values can really be infused into it so as you said you know you've got these um, black bound days and those events and it's been a bit it's been easier online let's see if it translates as, as we come out of lockdown if it translates into real physical people going out there supporting their own businesses uh, it's, it's going to be very challenging that's I guess what, I, what I'm saying because it, it requires uh, a big culture shift and behaviour change there is to me no such thing as a value of a black owned and support black owned business and so forth and I say that as a black man Okay, simply because one island cannot survive on its own you need integration you need to be able to diversify um you know and i, I walk into the restaurant now so right this is a black owned restaurant i'm going to buy my rice here but who's supplying me the rice 
Who's supplying me the knife and fork that I'm going to eat it with? So unless you can turn around and tell me that every single thing that supports that business is black owned, black operated or black whatever, okay? Don't throw stones if you live in a glass house. And, and then people look at me and they say to me, you know, on the front of it all, we don't see black people working in your business. Um, and and I, I say to them, because you're not looking, a lot of the products that we sell are um, products that are from small black owned businesses who are trying to put food on their table. And a lot of people turn around and say, I oh, go into a packs and all I see is Asians. Well, you know, sorry, 60% of my staff are actually Eastern Europeans. They're not Asian. That makes no sense. This is Kalia Ismain, co-founder of Jammy UK. Jammy is an online marketplace and discount card that connects black British businesses to consumers to encourage repeated spending within the black community. A black owned, it's literally in the title, who owns the business? Like when you go to company's house and you look at the ownership of the business, is that person whose name is on there? Are they black or are they not black? Black-owned supply chains, which he's talking about, are incredible and are very important. And when you have a black-owned business, you're more likely to have black-owned supply chains. But you cannot define a black-owned business by who they buy from and where their money goes. That's, that makes no sense whatsoever. That's, not, that's literally not the definition. <laughs> I actually think it's incredibly ignorant that Peter thinks that there is no value in black-owned business. Black-owned supply chains is a completely different concept, and yes, there is huge power in this, but there are also so many other benefits of supporting black businesses, especially when it comes to hair. Kalia tells us more. Um, but also, it's important that we support the businesses that come from our own community, because um, that's how, as a community, we grow. That's how we get wealth circulating, because it's proven time and time again like black owned businesses are more likely to hire black people they are more likely to fund initiatives and projects and institutions that center black people and the black experience they're more likely to um, create products and services specifically to serve us as well and so we're doing ourselves a favor by looking for black owned businesses and supporting them and and going out of our way to buy from them and i think yeah on the point of convenience yeah, it's not the most convenient thing in the world, but it's not. But that's not got anything to do with it being a black-owned business. It's just like it's a small business. I think it's just about customers recognizing, yeah, but you're actually supporting a small business. You're supporting someone who's passionate, who cares, who loves what they do, and who's going to be giving back in in some way. Um, so you can wait a little bit longer. Or you can go a little bit out of your way. It's not the worst thing in the world um, if you have to wait an extra day. <laughs> Most of this feels like a no-brainer. Buy black, support the community, and we'll grow together. But now what happens when there is a consumer demand for black-owned products and brands and being a black-owned business is at the centre of the brand's identity and the promotion of the brand? I mean, something kicked off on social media last year in the height of all this um, um, Black Lives Matter thing where people were turning to, to, to rubbish, uh, you know, um, uh, hair care companies I mean I joined a couple of these groups there was one of them in particular that started and within two weeks had over a hundred thousand followers and I thought this is fantastic let me uh, let me register as a business and I got slated you know you're not black you're not black and I'm like well and then then they banned me from the thing but didn't you say that Pax is a family-owned Pakistani business and not technically black-owned business well I own part of it and I'm black 
Where what's do you want your, to draw the line? What's your, what's your heritage? When you say what my heritage is, what do you want? What's your heritage? Don't me, don't, when you say what's my heritage, what exactly do you mean? What's your ethnic background? I'm a Jamaican. I'm black. Black Jamaican. My mother's black. My father's black. You want to do my DNA test, you'll find I'm 28% Nigerian. You want to carry on? You've just seen my kids. My wife's Ghanaian. Where do you want to go with the story? I know. Just exactly. when, you say, when you say Jamaican, Jamaican isn't an ethnicity. It's nationality. Trust man, I can't cuss bad word badly. Okay. I'm just getting black some clarity. Man. I'm just getting some clarity because when people see packs, they see Pakistani family owned, which is why we need don't, to. Tell, don't they see somewhere where they come and buy their products, where they appreciate the service, where they appreciate being able to buy products at an affordable price? I mean, 10 million people do. Listen, make what you will of Peter's comments. I would never sit here and say who's black and who's not. But what I did feel was a bit strange after that interview. You can even hear it in my voice at times. I felt like I was being bamboozled to think certain things. Part of me thought, am I feeling this because a black man is telling us what we don't want to hear? Or actually, does this brand have an agenda to make us question supporting black owned businesses? So I went to do some extra research. The question that I want to ask you at this point is, when you see PAX, do you see a part black owned business or a low cost Afro hair care provider? Let's talk about the facts. Pax Cosmetics was founded in 1986. Peter joined the business in 2006. According to Company's House, the company, Pax Cosmetics Centre Limited, is currently listed as a dormant company. The active directors of this company are Sahir and Tamva Hussain. It is the Hussein family that started this business. On PAC's website, it states that PAXcosmetics.com is managed and operated by Beauty Logistics Limited. Now, if we look at Beauty Logistics Limited on Company's House, Peter is registered as a secretary and was appointed in 2018, and Jangir and Usman Hussein are registered as the directors. There is one person listed as having significant control, Jangir Hussain, who has 75% or more shares in the business. We don't know exactly what percentage of these shares that Jangir has, and even if Peter does have some of these shares in the business, what is clear is that the vast majority of ownership lies with the Hussain family, and Pax is not a black-owned business. What's really clear, and Peter touches on this himself in the conversation that we had, is that the narrative has shifted. Since the death of George Floyd and the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter movement in 2020, conversations around race have evolved. A lot more black people now want to know who own the brands where they spend a lot of their money. And for many brands where black people are their biggest customers, they're starting to panic. As quite frankly, there are black owned brands that are thriving online that we can buy from and the rise in consciousness is shifting where we spend our money. In actual fact, producer Sylvie has a couple of specific examples around this topic. Earlier in the year, and actually completely unrelated to this podcast, she reached out to a couple of hair care brands to find out if they are in fact black owned. I want to say last April, I started thinking more and more about the brands that I was using and I reached out to some companies on Instagram and I said, hey, just, just checking in, are you, a, are you a black owned brand? 
And some people say, oh, you know, that's a bit divisive. No, I think that we should be able to ask these questions. Anyway, I asked the company, ORS Curls Unleashed, so I used to love using their product. So I said, hello, is ORS Unleashed black owned? Hello, our company is part of the brick and mortar of the African-American hair care category that you see today. We are proudly black founded and remain black founded until 2011 when the parent company was acquired by Dabour International. Today, we continue on the same path as we did when we were founded in 1996, addressing the needs for healthy hair care and serving the black community in which we have founded. I said, thanks for the background history, but to answer my question, you're no longer black owned. <laughs> all I asked you was one question, are you seeing this? And this is what I'm saying about trying to pull the wool over my eye. Yo, all I asked you was a simple question. So then, even though we are no longer black owned, we are majority black operate and support black businesses continuously for our partnerships. I hope this answers your question. And if you're a consumer of the ORS hair care brand, we greatly appreciate your support. And after about an exchange of 10 messages back and forth with them bouncing off, no, we're not. That's all I asked. And, and these things, as much as they're secretive, why can't they be public knowledge? If you believe in your source enough and you are saying that you are supporting and benefiting the black community, then be honest. If we're asking you a question, be honest. Let it be our choice whether we go and buy our black goods from your company or we go and support our own black entrepreneurs. But... Let us have the choice. Don't don't try and throw wool over our eye. This example shows that these brands are so scared of alienating the black consumers that they don't know what to say to us. They don't know how to handle the situation and are starting to make it a taboo subject. But really, it's really simple. It's black and white. And just to bring this back to Peter and Pax, the narrative of Pax being a part black owned business is a new one. In a 2016 article in Vice, written by Yomi Adegoke, when asked about the ownership of the black hair care retail sector, he said, and I quote, Just this weekend, a supplier came up to me at an event and said, I didn't realise it was Asians running this company. They thought they were doing business with a black company. I, as in Peter, said, How different would it be if it was a black company or a white company or a green company? You still obviously enjoy doing business with them. Within this article, we also question why these accusations are solely pointed at the Afro hair industry. He also says, and I quote, most of the people in retail are Asian. My take on this is that every community has the right to own whatever businesses and services that they want. The issue comes into play when the waters are muddied and brands are trying to mislead us into thinking that they are black owned when in reality they are not in order to retain our business. As consumers, we have the power to choose. So why does this information have to be seen as controversial and not just public knowledge? I think that the reason this is an uncomfortable conversation, if we think about the hair sector specifically, is because as soon as we, as black people, start spending our money within our own community, over time, and this will take a long time, there will be very little business left for the South Asian owned hair shops and businesses. This goes deeper than just on a consumer level. We spoke to someone that runs one of the hair shops local to Sylvie in West London. He is a South Asian man and spoke to us about being supportive of buying black owned. But when it came down to it, he didn't actually want to speak to us on tape. This is what happened. We're rolling. So um, let's explain to the people what's just happened to us. Okay, so we've just come to my local hair shop because I'd been speaking to 
the owner of the hair shop about a month ago just about the afro hair project and he was a he was a bit apprehensive to take part he had some really interesting views for example so he's a south asian man indian man he said that he thought it was very good that a lot of the ownership was going back into the black community he said that he was super aware and very understanding that obviously the black community feed him and his kids it's, it's his yeah it's his livelihood so i contacted him and i said i really want to come back and interview you and he was a bit apprehensive we came today and yeah we, we, could, we could speak to him off the record but not recording and obviously we have to respect his privacy and ultimately he is nervous to speak out about his support for black community and the black businesses growing because he's worried that his community will protect, potentially blacklist him and the suppliers which are South Asian in his community will no longer sell him products and he said he has to protect his livelihood and we have to respect that but that poses so many more questions right yeah i just couldn't quite understand what exactly it was that would that he was concerned about sharing that would get him blacklisted because from what we were hearing he was very much in support of there being more black owned business but and the thing is, is we're not questioning why there are so many south asian owned black hair shops it's a discussion point yeah and, and that's the thing i just think he said that it's a sensitive talking point and that it doesn't annoy me but it does you don't want to make everything about race but you do start to question okay so when black people start waking up and being more mindful it terrifies other communities a bit it is is, is kind of how i felt yeah. it and and it, and it goes to show you so the suppliers and a lot of the people that own the stores we know this already are not black owned so i think that maybe it's maybe internally within their communities it's causing a bit of fear because taking away the fact that you want to be pro-black if these people have been doing it for years they're like hold on a second is my livelihood is my money gonna go and that is another element i don't think it's an element that i personally care about as a black person because i'm about our progression exactly but i still do think that it is something that is maybe worrying a lot of them now what that we're gonna take too much power back yeah spade a spade i think i think that's it i think they're quaking a bit saying hold on a second mm. if they start doing this then, then what, what are we going to do yeah. and you can't knock a brother for, for trying to protect that this whole discussion has really highlighted the power of the black pound and shows that when we as a community come together we have the potential to really build something amazing we can build generational wealth in a way that we have not been able to do in this country yet i presented this information to you not to encourage you to boycott packs, but to give you the information you need so that if buying black owned is something that is important to you, whether that be for your hair products or beyond, then you can make more informed choices when it comes to where you spend your money. Looking towards the future, I asked the question, what can we learn from other successful black owned businesses? And what is the positive impact that actively supporting Black-owned businesses can have on our community? I want to see people talking about the positive. I want to see people promoting those who are doing well. Don't tell me what's not, you know, what what you've been disenfranchised with or disadvantaged with. Let's talk about the success. Let, let's talk about the great foods of the world that are out there, you know, rocking the numbers, able to buy other companies, um, you know, 
you don't see them standing up and saying, yeah, we're black, we're black. You know, you, you see them selling product. And most of their customers are, are not exactly black. You, you say about, you know, the success of black businesses, that's one that, you know, tips off the, the top of my tongue every time mm. um, you know, as the success. And then you've got some other brands that are out there that have done well, um, that have sold on, you know, they've, they've sold their business on. Um, in the in States, uh, quite recently, there was the big talk about the Shea Moshe guy who sold his, his brand to a conglomerate. Um, yeah, you know, business, you know, these products and these businesses are just that. If somebody comes along and offers you 10 years profit for your hard work, um, don't get emotional about it. You know, it, it, that's what you're there for. You're there to make a profit. For me, it hasn't changed. It, it's about um, expert information, maintenance advice, professional tips, in other words, responding to the consumer need. But also in there is a level of the consumer consciousness to actually understand that part of what they're buying is the sustainability in the community, are the jobs for the young people, is the training and education and skills development of the community and that ecosystem. So that, that awareness of the ecosystem that does exist, there's, there's still a ways to go, but that can be learned. And again, the lessons are there from the past. It's been done before. Few people actually do that kind of research when they enter the market. They enter the market on the basis of a kind of a hype that it hasn't been done before, they're the first this or whatever it is. Or there's something new about what they're doing or they say, oh, I couldn't find any hair products, or I couldn't find any expertise, so I made them myself. Without actually researching the market and understanding the very high level of uh, um, achievement that the industry you know, really wants to have and many of those same people and the legacy of all those people you know, you know I spoke to Derek Clement, Splinters and there's so many other organisations you know in the mix that I can drive the course on the distribution side so there's a whole lot of talent and information around if you're concerned to, you know, to find out about it. But if we start owning it means that what we're saying is that i want some, i want you guys now to start coming to us so we're going to start selling our own food selling our own the hair products in the hair industry especially we've got to make sure that we start saying i need a piece of this pie and and really stand up for that while if we if we start owning things in our community we are able to employ we're able to educate. So there's so many things that we can do. And so that is why I think that ownership is so important. But I think over the next few years, what I can see happening, um, which I think is really interesting, is like a real push from the retail sector to become more inclusive in their supply chains, um, which will mean more black owned products in uh, big high street stores and big supermarkets. So, you know, your likes of Tesco, Superdrug, Boots, which is obviously a um, big win uh, for, the, um, for the makers who are able to get into those stores um, and also obviously the community who are looking for convenience and just want to get into those stores as well. But also like um, a shift towards people who don't want to do that, who just want to stay selling directly to the consumer or say, say selling through independent stores and marketplaces. Like there's a, a whole movement going on around like shopping small, shopping consciously, shopping local, shopping black, which, okay, things aren't trending like they were last year, but it doesn't matter because social media isn't the be all and end all. And there has been like a shift fundamentally in attitudes. 
Um, and I also think that big businesses and corporations are going to continue trying to do what they can. It does seem like bit like business in any case is starting to is, is leading the way in terms of social change um, and pushing things forward, creating opportunity. If you take anything from this episode, be more intentional with your shopping habits. Support and promote black businesses. If you have a friend that has a business, doing something as simple as sharing and tagging their business can go such a long way. For our community to thrive, we need to support one another. And later in this series, we'll be spotlighting some black owned hair care brands that we think you should get to know. On the next episode, I'll be exploring the truth about hair relaxers and whether you can have healthy relaxed hair or if hair relaxers are the cause of health issues in black women. I think they have made a connection now between uterine fibroids and relaxers being absorbed. Thank you for listening to Coiled. Coiled is hosted and produced by me, Leanne Alley. The assistant producer is Sylvie Carlos. The theme music and closing music was composed by Oni Iroha. If you do anything after listening to this episode, share it with a younger sibling, cousin, friend, anyone you think needs to hear this so that we can empower the next generation to fully embrace and love their Afro hair. Because all hair is good hair. Make sure you listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Instagram at Coiled Podcast so you never miss an episode. You can also use the hashtag Coiled Podcast on Twitter to let us know your thoughts on the episode. What have you learned? What really surprised you? Let's keep the conversation going. I'll see you next time.